Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Well, hello again, folks. Welcome back to OMD Daily. Unlike previous episodes where I talk about just what I learned in the day, uh, today will be a conversation with Steven Shadlutsky. Uh, he's the head of brand experience and the Igniters team at Simon Sinek, Inc., Stephen was one of the early employees to join Simon Sinek's team, and for so those of you who don't know, Simon is the author of the bestseller, best-selling books like Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last, and The Infinite Game. In my first con- conversation with Stephen on the Accounted For podcast, which is kind of the predecessor to this, uh, I'll provide the link in the episode notes, we explored his career journey to joining Simon's team, and today we explore his experience actually helping leaders build companies where people can wake up inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and at the end of the day, feel fulfilled by the work they do. And so we chat about the company Stephen works with, building trust, before versus after, of his experience with working with various leaders and companies, the challenges to the work itself, and just much more. This was a previously recorded interview in preparation for this podcast. So without further ado, I present to you my fun and exciting chat with Stephen. And I hope you find a lot of nuggets and tidbits and learnings to take out of our conversation. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Stephen Shetleski. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Stephen here has been a prior guest on my first podcast, Accounted For, and today we're going to be talking a little deeper into what he does as the head of brand experience and the Igniters team at Simon Sinek, Inc. And so, Stephen, for the audience members who may not be familiar with Simon Sinek, Incorporated, can you tell us a little more about the company as well as what your position as the head of brand experience and Igniters actually means? Yeah, still trying to figure that one out. Um, (laughs) So... I mean, we, we are a for-profit business, but we very much view ourselves as a for-purpose movement. Mm. Um, everything that we do is designed to advance a world that we imagine. Um, we have a vision of a world different than the one that exists today. And we imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and at the end of the day, feel fulfilled by the work that they do. Um, inspired, safe, and fulfilled. And through uh, these COVID times, you know, our business has flexed. So much of what we used to do used to hop on planes and be, you know, at the front of conference rooms leading talks and workshops. And that business has dried up very quickly. Um, And it might come back. It might come back by the time this podcast comes out, or it might not. And we're just preparing that it's not going to. And so um, we're flexing. We're staunch on, uh, on our why, our purpose. We're very clear on our mandate and we get to be flexible in the ways that we do it. Um, And so we just, we were chatting before, we just launched a bunch of virtual classes. So anyone can go online and enroll in one of our courses and and we work with with leaders 
whether it's title or behavior to help them uh, feel more inspired and help them better inspire the people around them. Um, the role that I do internally, um, it's my job to ensure that uh, first and foremost, the way our culture, the experience of our culture on the inside of our company is reflective of what we preach to the outside world. Mm. Uh, it's not my sole responsibility, but it's something that I feel very passionate about. And I've been able to carve it into my job that we may as well stop doing what we do for the outside world if we don't live it on the inside. So inside out, I help ensure that everything that goes to the outside world reflects uh, who we are and what we believe from our marketing and social copy to our products and our people that go out and represent our brand. Um, and I help lead our team of speakers, of igniters and optimists. Um, igniters share Simon's ideas and optimists share their own, um, but it's all for the purpose of creating a more inspired, safe and fulfilled world. Got it. And um, are you an optimist or an igniter? Like, or And if you chose, I think you chose igniter, but why did you choose to go that route? Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm mostly an igniter, um, but you, you can be both. It simply depends on the ideas that, that you're sharing. Um, for me, I've, you know, Simon is an orator for me, Simon Sinek, our, our founder. I so believe in what he imagines. I so believe in his work and I love practicing, practicing it and making it better. Um, I mean, Simon's job is to help point to the picture on the jigsaw puzzle, the puzzle that we're trying to solve. He's such a good uh, preacher. Um, and my job is to really work with people to understand the concepts and live them themselves. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I've had enough work work to do as, as an igniter for the time being. And, you know, if, if and when there is something that is worth pursuing in the optimist realm, great, but I'm not rushing towards it yet. Got it. And we talked about the, the mission for Simon Sinek Inc. And for people who are familiar with Simon, they know him through usually his books. Like I, that's how I learned about Simon as well by reading, you know, Find Your Why as well. Well, the first book, Start with Why, and then mm. read Find with Why afterwards, as, which is kind of like the workbook to that mm. book. And then there's, you know, Leaders Eat Last and the new one, um, Infinite Games. And people might think that, oh, then it's just like a book publishing company, but there's much more to it. Like you talked about, there's the, the virtual classes, the, the igniters have the workshop. So how does the company actually, um, like, let's say, like, generate revenue because it's a for-profit business? Um, sure. We can talk about the kind of before COVID times. <laughs> we, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of businesses might have the before COVID, after COVID moments, but I'm curious on, like, the before COVID times, like, what the business was kind of, how did it actually look like from internally? Sure. I mean, what I love about... Um... What I love about Simon is he doesn't put work out into the world unless he feels as though there's value to it. So he he doesn't write books because his publisher expects him to, though they do. Um, he he writes books when he feels called to. Um, so he never intended to to be an author. All of his books are semi autobiographical. So he had a profound shift in the way he viewed the world. He thought it was valuable to share with others, and he tried to take what was inside of him, what he experienced, and share it in a way that people could could understand in a simple way and use. So that's how Start With Why was born. Um, Leaders Eat Last was born out of working with uh, predominantly U.S. military, and he saw these people who would do absolutely heroic acts, and it had little to do with them and everything to do with the environment that they were in. Um, uh, he wrote Together is Better, which is just more of a nice sort of simple book for, for fans. It's a quote book. 
um, Find Your Why we came out with, which is a guidebook. We wrote Start With Why. People loved it. And everyone said, great, but how do I actually find it? And so eight years later, we finally wrote Find Your Why. Um, and he just came out with The Infinite Game, which I think is probably unbiased, but his most powerful work. Mm-hmm. And so the, the books are sort of chapters in his own development as his ideas have matured. What's really fun is right now we're doing a Start With Why book club because Simon, Start With Why, the first book has been out for 10 years and he's going to do an updated 10th year anniversary edition of the book because there's references to like a Walkman and TiVo and some old stuff that like, what's TiVo? Walkman, right? So uh, he's just going to update it to make it uh, even more relevant to these times. But what's fun is as you read his first book, Start With Why, the parallels to the infinite game, which is how do you win a game in which there is no finish line, um, a, a build on upon game theory as it relates to business, the application is thick. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the books are a great way just to get the ideas out there. Um, and then we do uh, a myriad of things right now. Um, one of the things that we used to do a lot was live events. We still do a lot of them, but right now they're being done virtually. So we'll join a conference or join a, a company and work with a group of people to help them get more clear on their why, help them build greater trust, uh, uh, study their worthy rivals. We do a lot of fun exercises helping individuals and organizations study other players, whether they're in their industry or not, to help them improve, to find areas of, of improvement. We help companies pivot with their purpose. Uh, so that's pretty relevant right now. There are so many uh, industries and companies that are being disrupted. How can you stay relevant while being actually in offensive mode rather than reactive mode? And we believe that you can do that by pivoting with your purpose and, and your values. Um, and we teach leaders how to, how to act with greater courage uh, which isn't some like internal organ. Courage actually comes from the people around us. So we're, you know, we we don't care about business. We care about people and human connection. And you can just influence a lot of people that way. Um, so we still do live events. We just launched these uh, live classes. That's a, an open enrollment. So anyone open to the public can come and join us. We, uh, I've been leading one called Jumpstart Your Why, which is a two-hour workshop to help people get the first draft of their own personal why. It's been a ton of fun. Um, And we have uh, a lot on culture, on pivot. Um, So that's a fun thing that we've just launched. We also have ready to go tools. So online courses and PDFs and things that anyone can buy on demand off the shelf and use. Uh, And we're also doing something cool. So Simon, before COVID, launched his first ever tour. So just like a comedian would go on tour and give a uh, you know, do a stand-up comedy set. Simon's been going on tour and preaching. He's been going up on stage and talking about his ideas about, um, you know, leading with an infinite mindset, uh, about um, uh, about human connection and how we need human connection now more than ever. I think we actually have a pandemic of loneliness that we're more connected with technology. We're actually quite disconnected. And even what we're going through with COVID and, and physical isolation is a nice sort of, a real extreme push of that. Mm-hmm. And, and we just, des- we described that we should practice physical distancing, but social closeness mm. and, and how great that we have technology that can help us do that. But we really do have a, have a social relationship issue, I think in the, in the world today. And I think COVID is shining a light on that and actually helping us potentially 
address it more head on because we're all going through it at, at the same time. Uh, and so we launched this tour. We did, I think we were supposed to do 10 dates. I think we only did six of them before we had to postpone them out. Um, but something that we're doing is uh, symbols matter. Uh, like people would get a Harley Davidson tattoo logo on their shoulder because they believe in freedom. <laughs> you know, uh, people would put an Apple sticker on their company PC because they just want to let you know in the airport, I'm a Mac person, not a PC. I'm just using this because of work. And so symbols have value. And so our company has a set of symbols. Our logo is the flame because our purpose is to spark and ignite and inspire people. And so we're actually coming out with a merchandise store. So anyone mm -hmm. who's a fan of Simon's work, actually, I'm actually wearing one right now. I have a t-shirt on right now that says uh, banana because that's one of our internal team words. Banana is a polite way of saying if someone is talking too long-windedly and you understand their idea, you don't need to hear anymore. You just go banana, like gotcha. Or that's not what this meeting is, is about. Let's take that one offline. So it's just a polite way of saying like, I, I gotcha. You don't need to keep talking. So we have some t-shirts, we have some notebooks, we have some pins, uh, some fun stuff that we're going to be uh, launching very shortly. For those who believe in Simon and the message that, that he preaches, they can show the world, hey, just like there's a, a Nike logo, there's a, there's a, a logo for, for, for optimism as well. Awesome. No, that's, that's super cool. And I love how you guys are getting creative and constantly evolving the business around that purpose as well. Are you, are you also going to be selling the, uh, the coin? Uh, the coin that you gave me before we will be yeah we're gonna sell the coin the exact same coin that i gave you so we have these little tokens of inspiration that when uh, uh somebody says that they're inspired by the ideas or we are inspired by someone we give them a little token of inspiration a little talisman to remind them to continue to act and lead with with courage and so yeah anyone can go get a token the only difference between the ones simon and i hand out is that it won't have our name on it uh, and that you can you can keep it yourself. But more importantly, we want you to give it to people who uh, who inspire you to give them the courage to keep going. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the work that you do um, as an igniter and you, you kind of briefly touched upon how you work with a lot of different kinds of organizations. And it's I'd like to get a kind of wrap my head around that, like um like there's, you know, various kind of workshops you do, there's a live events, but if we looked at the kind of meat and potatoes of the majority of the work you do with organizations, like what, what kind of organizations do you work with? Like, are they like generally, if you had to categorize it, would you categorize it as companies that are all kind of relatively big? Um, or is it kind of more like a geographical thing, industry thing? Um, how would you just categorize the kinds of companies you work with? The one thing in common with all the companies we work with is that people work there. Um, <laughs> So it's, it's, it's far more psychographic than anything else. Um, we work with people who are students, not experts. We work with people who believe in our ideas but want to get better. And so it's everything from the largest organizations on the Fortune 100 to small local, you know, small local companies. We work with companies that are, we've worked with solopreneurs. We've worked with uh, small companies of 10 people, mid-sized companies of tens or, or hundreds, mm. or multinational global, like it's, it's all. But what's fun, the one thing in common with everywhere we work is there's a champion. There's at least one person who goes, this Simon guy, this, this, this ideology, there's something here, that there's more to business than simply turning a profit, that actually the purpose of business is to advance a purpose 
the responsibility of business is to advance a purpose, to protect our people, employees, our vendors, customers, society. Um, and, you know, we're not anti-capitalist. We're just anti the form of capitalism that's been practiced for the past 30, 40 years. We're very pro-capitalist, just not Milton Friedman economics, Adam Smith economics. Like can, the one- Can you expand on that for the people who are not familiar with the two kinds? Sure. And you, I'd, I'd love for your perspective as well, Daniel, because I think you might know this even better from different perspectives than me, but Milton Friedman was an, uh, was an economist that in the 1970s, he won the first ever- Nobel Prize in economics. And I'm pretty sure it was developed for him. And I think he paid for it. There's a rumor that he paid for it. And he, he popularized a notion, an ideology that the responsibility of business is to maximize shareholder value and profit while staying within the bounds of the law, which is a really low standard. What about ethics? Um, and, uh, I mean, it, it's the same thing as saying the purpose of a car is to put fuel in it. No, it's not. The purpose of a car is to go places. And, uh, I mean, this is more toward Adam Smith economics with an invisible hand, which means that the, your organization will always strive to get better and better and better to be more competitive for the consumer, Hmm. right? It's not about you, the organization. It's about those that you serve. So I would describe Adam Smith economics is more service oriented economics and that the healthiest organizations are the ones that keep getting better and better and better for their customer, not for them. It's like, when was the last time you got a new credit card in the mail with updated terms of service? And you immediately thought, wow, this is going to benefit me. It never benefits you. It benefits them, right? That's not service oriented. That's self-interested. And the impact is we don't have trust. Uh, and so you know, there were disciples of Friedman's ideas. One of them was Jack Welch, who led GE for many years. And he was a finite-minded leader. Now, granted, Friedman's ideas and Welch's, uh, Jack Welch's practices worked in the short term, hmm. right? Um, th what we've seen, the, the strategies that came out of Milton Friedman economics and Jack Welch practices were um, mass layoffs on an annualized basis to balance the books, which is inhumane. That's using your people as pawns in a chess game that if you don't hit your budget or you don't hit your projections or you want to make things look better so that the very few at the top get a higher bonus, just ax some people, right? And Welch made rank and yank, which is you rank your employees uh, as it relates to their contribution to the stock price you promote the top 10% and you fire the bottom, the bottom 10%, which does wonders for your culture. Let me tell you that, right? <laughs> and what are you going to do internally to ensure that you're in the top 10%? Whose backs will you step on, right? People aren't bad. The environments they operate can be bad. And then you get bad behavior, right? You, you can take someone who's a wonderful moral person and put them in a, in a, a unsafe and unethical environment. And they're capable of doing awful things. Similarly, you can put a person who we've deemed unfit for society, put them in a good environment, and they're able to rehabilitate and do remarkable things and, and contribute. So it's about the environment. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but we, we believe that the responsibility of business is to advance a purpose, to protect people, and that it's fine to turn a profit, but profit ought to be used to advance one and two. Profit are, are, is used as the fuel to keep the car going. 
to keep advancing this purpose that, that you believe in and protecting your people, which means that you can pay your people well. Um, but when times are good, you're conservative so that when times are bad, you're, you can be conservative too. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think if um, you might be pretty, fam- pretty familiar with the story as well, but you gave an example for the Milton Freeman kind of executive and uh, executive that comes to my mind that might be on like the more Adam Smith side of serving is Herb Kelleher, the, uh, pre- the founder of uh, Southwest Airlines, who I think passed away last year or two years ago. But yeah. he was at the perspective of how every there are, there are a few good CEOs and leaders who know that you know they always preach about customer service first, the customer is king. But Herb Keller's point of view was that no, the employee is king because when your employees taking feel taken care of, then they will take care of the customer as a result of that, and then the company will prosper. And people who are familiar with the Southwest Airline story know that they're practically like the only airline that's been like profitable for like twenty years compared to all the other big ones out there. Yeah, well, so there's tons of these, what we would call infinite-minded leaders, these leaders that know that the purpose of business is not to win because there's no such thing. The purpose of business is to stay in the game and advance, advance what your organization stands for. And Southwest Airlines, at its best, stands for caring for people. And Herb Kelleher and company knew that the only way customers will love the company is if the employees love it first. Um, Now, what's interesting, though, is we can all fall off the wagon. And Southwest Airlines has been very public about pushing Boeing to produce, produce, produce the 737 MAX because that's the only plane that they fly. And they, they, they also pressured Boeing to make a plane that would, re- would require no additional training for their pilots to keep Southwest costs low. And so I bring this up because just the, these ideas and these practices aren't absolute. Just like, you know, I, you know, just because I, I eat well, exercise, sleep well, and nurture my relationships for a period of time, I'm healthy. But if I stop doing one or more of those, those things, I can quickly become unhealthy. And that's the same with uh, having an infinite mindset or being purpose first or having a values-based uh, leadership model or a people-first company. Um, is uh, these things aren't absolute. It takes constant work and context is always shifting, right? The, the environment you're operating in from a market and economical perspective is always shifting. So I think Herb Kelleher absolutely is a great example. And I see the pressure that Southwest put on Boeing. And I wonder, you know, Boeing should have some courage too and say, you know what, we'll make you a better plane, but it's going to require some extra training. Uh, otherwise, we'll just keep making you old four Tauruses for this guy, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, and, and you see this time and time again, Sam Walton of Walmart, amazingly infinite-minded leader who everything they did was for middle class and to make things more affordable. And then, unfortunately, uh, a finite-minded leader came in and made it about um, pinching vendors, right? And not about actually raising quality of life for all so um these these things aren't absolute it takes leaders with vision and courage to keep practicing practicing them uh, that's that's absolutely true and i think you bring up an excellent point there about how yeah like the system can't just be left alone to just work itself it has to continuously be iterated and the system has to evolve like i think the a popular saying is that the only constant is change and yep you want to be build like a flexible system that can change with it and that brings me to ask you 
about the system that you kind of create when you work with these organizations. Like if if you were to kind of describe or give like an example of kind of engagement that you have with an organization, like how does it look like? Is it like a weekend workshop or is it like a multi-month month like engagement? How does it look like for you when you actually work with a company? So you're making me think of two things. One is what are the practices we do internally on our team to live what we preach? Because in many respects, we're our own client. Um, and then also, you know, what what's the work that we often do with or, with organizations as well? Um, I mean, re, a, a lot of the I, I like to describe the work that we do is we're kind of a, a chiropractor for your purpose um, is a lot of the reason companies will come to us is we're really good at helping organizations and leaders step back and reflect and get really clear in clear, plain English language backed with anthropological stories of their culture, of who they are at their best and how they can continue to do it on purpose. Um, so we have a great uh, uh, process to help individuals or organizations articulate their why and their just cause, their purpose and their vision. And um, our why, our purpose comes from our past. It's an origin story. And so we help leaders, individuals, and, and organizations reflect back on the moments that make them feel proud to be who they are, and then put their purpose and values into clear, tangible language such that they can uh, scale it and do it on purpose and scale it throughout an, an organization. Um, one of the challenges I see with, some, with many of the companies, whether we work with them or not, is the middle. So I've seen so many highly high-performing, high-trust executive leadership teams but as soon as you get to the middle, it breaks, right? And I, I also see that executive leadership teams feel that trust in the organization is a lot better than it actually is. And what it is, is it's a, it's a break in the chain. As human beings, we're not designed for scale. We're a tribal species. We used to live in tribes of 100 or 150. This is Robin Dunbar's number. As soon as the tribe grew to 150, it would split off and become a, a, a separate tribe, right? It's just our social capability. So any CEO who says, I care about all 14,000 of my people is lying. Like you just can't do it. All you can do is care for your 150 and hope that they care for their 150 and so on until the most junior employee feels that they have top cover, feels that their leader has their back. And so um, a lot of what we do as well is help organizations um, uh, uh, cascade leadership through their, their, their organizations that how can you make leaders at every level? Hmm. And leadership is not title, leadership is a choice. Leadership is, is service orientation. Uh, leadership is looking out for others at, ahead of your own self-interest. And when you do that, the, the result is trust. Um, you know, if, if you go to a mentor and ask them for career advice, you would expect that that advice is in your own best interest, not in their own, right? If it's in their own, not a leader, self-interested. And so um, a, a lot of the work we do is, is helping organizations identify their true north and then stick to it. Um, and what's fun is we can come back every quarter or so and see how they're doing as a chiropractor for their why and ensure that in the new context, they're still going. Some of like the most fun work that I'll do is coming back to an, an organization as their environment shifts or they start up a new business. And how do we do this one in our own unique way, but still represents who we are and what, what we believe as a, as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and then very tangibly, there's a bunch of stuff we do as a team that helps us live what we preach. We believe that relationship is the foundation of accomplishment. 
Um, and so we're really um, mindful and very, uh, and with, with a lot of intent have designed some internal practices to help keep our culture strong. Um, so one thing we do every week, I mean, our, our team has been remote for the past 10 years. So this, this, you know, everyone's working from, from home. We've been doing it for, for, for 10 years and it has its advantages and it has its challenges as well. There's no water cooler. So just like that simple stuff where you can just communicate information across the company very easily, harder to do. Um, and so we have to be very mindful of how we do it. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things we have every week is called huddle. We have a 75 minute call every Monday morning where um, we come on, we come together, uh, we give each other high fives. What did you accomplish last week that you couldn't have done without the help of somebody else? We acknowledge each other publicly. Um, we uh, have a question of the week. So it could be deep or it could be fun. Um, when COVID hit, we asked our team, what's a trick, what's a tip or trick you would share with someone who's working remote for the first time? And then we compiled that and made that, a, that something that we shared with the, with the world. Um, and then we give everyone an opportunity to check in, to share what's on their heart and mind, to just be present for the week, uh, or at least for that day. And we share a story of why we do what we do. We also have a connectivity call because the huddle call is about being, like who are we being? And the connectivity call is about what are we doing? And so on Wednesday, we have a weekly call where everyone around the company provides updates on what we're working on, what's something interesting that people should know about what we're working on, where we need help. Um, so it's something to help us stay connected and be on the same page. Um, we do 360s, which is really fun and really powerful, where we gather the people who work most closely with us and we do some pre-work. So I have my 360 coming up. I have to do my pre-work, which is what are the three areas where I, I know I need to improve? With, with specific specific examples? And what are three areas in the past six months where I feel I've been rocking it? Um, and I can't just go to like my strengths finder and say like communication, like I gotta get granular and, and specific. And then I share that pre-work out with the people I work most closely with. And I have a 45 minute call where they give me feedback on both of those areas. And it's both humbling and, and just this, it's this amazing conversation where the people who you work most closely with are helping you grow and helping you build relationship to your blind spots. Hmm. Um, we do a lot of internal coaching uh, and we do something else called acknowledgements where when it's someone's birthday, we all write them a special card about the difference that they've made in our lives in the past year. So all, all these things to help keep us tight such that when we need to rely on trust to take risks and get stuff done, uh, it's there. And I think that's an awesome overview of the kind of systems that you're creating inside the organization. And from what you've, and like, I feel like you, you know, you kind of get to this current place by doing a lot of things that might work and might not work. And I'm sure there's a lot of iterations that were made. And what system do, in your um, point of view kind of has been like the most impactful and kind of incentivizing people to, you know, continuously develop themselves and become this high performer inside the organization? Uh, push me if this isn't the answer that you want, but, um, I think the, the most impactful thing is, is that we, we have a leader of our company in Simon who knows that the work we're doing is more important than him, than any one of us. How does he make you like real, realize that? Uh, because we constantly talk about the world that we imagine 
which is a world in which we're inspired, safe, and, and fulfilled. He says that is more important than any one of us, including me, and he means it. Um, uh, everything we do is not about selling, it's about serving. And, and we've created an organization in which people are willingly are willing to make sacrifices in the short term to advance something in the long term and bigger than than any one of us. Um, and, and and we're like a normal business. We we have to pay attention to all the same things that all other businesses do as well. But it's steeped in something bigger. And so, I think the one thing that has helped us the most is that the work we do, we feel it matters, and that we're willing to make sacrifices, to advance it um, for, for, for what the ideology is, for the fact that many of us have experienced jobs and bosses that we've hated and that we don't want that for ourselves, for our friends, for our family, for our kids. Um, and that, you know, I think, I think the, the two most powerful things uh, for human beings, one is hope, optimism, um, a belief that tomorrow can be better and that we have a responsibility to help create it. And two is accountability. And accountability isn't to a number. Accountability is always to a person. And so I could tell you tomorrow morning, I'm going to go for a run before my kids wake up. I'm going to wake up at 530 in the morning, put on my running shoes and do it. And nah, like I let myself down repeatedly. But what I won't do is let somebody down that I care about. There's a bunch of work that I have to do right now that's not glorious, fun work. I have to write email copy for all these virtual classes, reminder emails for eight different classes. Like, oh my God, I don't want to do it, but I'm not going to let my colleague, Justin, open his computer on Monday morning and see that I haven't done them and done them well. And that I, I think optimism, hope and accountability are the two most powerful forces. And we've, we've set that up on our team. We're not perfect. Um, and these stressful, challenging times have have put pressure on the system, but we have something bigger than us that we're contributing to. And we have relationships that matter to us that help us keep going. Both of those things help us keep going. Yeah. And I think there, there could also be, I think, uh, like you mentioned how the people that work with you, it's kind of like, it starts with kind of scratching your own itch, right? You, you don't want other people to experience the kind of bad culture that you might've experienced the bad bosses you might've had. And I think in our, first conversation you talked about how you joined the organization as like just answering like fan letter and like you know you're coming from a world where you know you used to be like a management consultant you used to work in like these big companies and so now you're just answering fan email but you had this purpose behind you that's why you could do all like the unsexy work but you had purpose behind like why you're doing all this and there's also this tr implicit i think trust that you had in the organization yeah it was more than implicit it was explicit as well but it was it was I mean, the, the, the previous jobs I, I had before weren't that, that glorious, and I didn't care about the work. The only reason I, I existed to do that work was to either increase the share price or, uh, and that was in the context of my first job at an oil and gas company, and the other was to keep our project costs down and make our client more money. Like it sucked. It was shitty work. Pardon my, my French. And, and then, but like, you know, they were sexy jobs. I was in a rotational management program or I was a management consultant. They were, you know, quote unquote, sexy jobs. And now I moved to 
a small company making very little money, um, doing like essentially mopping the floors or painting a fence. Um, but it was steeped in something bigger. And I believe so much in the visionary and our leaders that I, that I was willing to put in the time and I was willing to do grunt work and I was willing to learn and I was willing to, um, to earn their trust in order to do more of the work that I knew I could and the work that was more aligned with my strengths that I knew I would love. So, yeah. And in, in the topic of earning trust, I think that's, that, I think that's a relatively difficult thing, at least for, for me, like from, from what I've experienced when I try to talk to other CEOs or entrepreneurs about the value of investing in people and, you know, thinking about building these systems, it, it's been a relatively difficult hurdle. And I think even I also kind of caught up with like my own old like consulting uh, partners and they've kind of recently started reading about Simon Sinek and, but like the big question that they had was like, yeah, but how do I know if this is actually going to work? Like, how do I, how do you build that trust with people? Like you talked about how usually when you work with an organization, you have a champion already and they'll bring mm-hmm. you in, but then there's going to be, like you said, the challenge of other executives and management team members who are very like skeptical. How do you earn the trust of the kind of everyone in the organization? Cause you need buy-in from everyone, right? To actually you- create the change. Yeah, you actually don't need buy-in from everyone. Oh, so I mean, there's a a, a couple things come come to mind. One is, you know, Daniel promised to me that if I practice these things as a as a parent, my kids will turn out and be successful. Like, sorry, can't promise you. You just got to do it because it feels right. It's the right thing to do, and you hope that they make you proud. Right. It's the it's the same thing. Um, but the, the funny thing about this stuff of having an organization stand for something more than profit, um, really important, both for, uh, the engagement of your people, as well as when you go through an existential crisis, do you crumble because the only purpose of your business was to make a widget and turn a profit, or can you flex what you do? Like if our company had less of a purpose and this global pandemic hit where we can no longer practice and do our work. If we double down and say, no, 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 the public speaking industry is going to be just fine. You know, or if like, if I'm a, if I'm a a cruise ship company, am I, am I in the mindset of, I just want to send out more cruises until they tell me I can't No, I'm working my tail off to flex and I'm going virtual reality. I'm saying we are no longer able to take out cruises, but we can flex and still provide experiences. It's what Airbnb is doing. Airbnb is now is now selling experiences. It's pretty cool, but it's consistent with who they are and their purpose, right? Uh, I, I don't know how they would articulate it. I think they do have it, but it's essentially they want you to go be embedded and grained in the culture of, of a place, right? And so they can still do that in a different forum. So you don't need to convince everyone in an organization. There is, this is what Simon wrote about, and it's become his religion. He wrote about it in Start With Why. It's the law of diffusion of innovation. It's the way ideas are, are adopted or social movements are, are started and sustained is you have your innovators. It's about two and a half percent of the population. These are our crazy idealists, our Steve Jobs, our Malellas, our Richard Bransons. Then you have your early adopters. 
early adopters make up the it's the it's the next standard deviation. It's about twelve point five percent of the population, um, and these are the people who don't need all the facts, data, and information to trust and believe. They just go, "Yep, that's right. I don't need to be convinced. That's where I want to go. I'm an early adopter of Simon's ideas. I didn't need to be convinced of their merit. I just believed it, and I was willing." to actually devote my life and career to advancing those ideas. Then you have the majority. You have your early majority and your late majority, which I think make up about 64% of your population. And then you have your laggards, last 16% of the population. Um, and uh, the only reason a laggards don't have a rotary phone anymore is because they don't sell them. But if they could, they would. So. Um, the mistake that too many leaders and organizations do is they try to convince the masses. Simon uses the example of TiVo, which was the very first PVR DVR company, right? They were the ones who uh, invented the ability for us to uh, learn your watching habits, pause and record t TV, skip commercials, but they tried to appeal to the masses. They, their marketing messaging literally started with what they did, right? Uh, we'll record the shows that you want. You can pause uh, live TV and we'll uh, learn your watching habits so we know what you like, algorithm. And the cynical majority went, whoa, that's weird, crazy, no thanks. Spying on me? No, thank you. But if they started their, their messaging with, if you're the type of person who wants complete control over everything that you do, I think we have a product for you. It pauses live TV, records your watching habits. In, in other words, we have to find the people who already believe what we believe, because the only way you get to the majority is if you get to all your early adopters. It's crossing the chasm, which is you, you need to get enough of a population in order for the cynical majority to, to come on board. And so if, if you believe in these ideas or you want them to work, find somebody else who believes in them as well. Mm -hmm. Find two more people who believe in them as well. You, you don't need to convince everyone. You just need to convince enough of the early adopters. And there's a brilliant three-minute TED Talk by Derek Sivers on this called How to Build a Movement, which is this crazy dude yeah. dancing at an at a outdoor festival concert. And one person joined him as if to mock him, but he was embraced as a follower. And in, in the span of less than two minutes, you see thousands of people dancing in this way because it becomes socially acceptable and now if you're not in it you're in the out crowd and it's the same thing adopting these ideas in an, in an organization and it's hard and it takes constant work and practice but it's actually good for business in, in the long run um but yeah the goal is not to force the goal is to find the volunteers the ones who wish to do it and believe it in any way mm -hmm. and, and it could also I guess it could be said that the people that come to you and ask for your help and actually want you to come work with them have kind of already convinced themselves like there's no convincing to be done. They believe in it and they want you to come and help them. And can you kind of walk me through maybe like a specific example of the kinds of systems that you've helped them maybe create and implement and how like maybe you kind of visit them every quarter and see like you, you're able to actually like track the improvement that they're making. I'm curious what kind of company that comes to your mind. So th this is something that we honestly struggle with because measuring purpose and trust is harder. It's one of the reasons we see Milton Friedman and Jack Welch as actually a worthy rival because they were able to create a system that was very easy to measure and we do what we can measure. And so we're constantly looking for better ways. Is it a purpose index? Is it a trust barometer? Like we're, we're looking 
uh, for ways to expand more and more. I'll give you an anecdote. Um, uh, and this, you know, metrics and systems aren't my foray, you know, but I'll give you an anecdote, which is proof in the pudding, I think. Um, there was an organization that uh, their CEO was a, was a champion. He saw one of our talks at, uh, at an event that he was at. And three weeks later, we were with working with his executive leadership team, helping them articulate purpose and values. Um, and we ended up having a three, four year relationship until that CEO then moved to a different company and we're now working with that company. But it started at, at the top with someone who really believed um, and believed in the importance of people uh, discovering, finding their individual purpose and relating it to the organization. And it's not a force feeding thing. If someone discovers their purpose and goes, not going to happen here, that's okay. That's actually fine or normal, or it could be in a different part of, of the organization. Um, but we, we had worked with them for a number of years. We um, did a number of, of, of workshops, did a number of all hands talks. We then did a bunch of internal training, train the trainer. The, the, the work was getting through the organization. We worked with them for three or four years. I gave an all hands talk on, uh, on the golden circle on start with why. And then about two and a half or three years later, I gave an all hands talk on the infinite game. Um, and after that, talk i was just hanging around and somebody uh, a random a stranger came up to me and and said um the feeling in this room is palpable and different than it was when we started and i went go on they said that um at the first all hands talk that i gave um about start with why people heard it it was okay and then everyone left but at this one, people are sticking around. And it's not that people are, are drinking more with their free drink ticket. They're drinking the same amount, but they're staying longer and there's no, they're no longer in cliques. They're cross-pollinating. People are choosing to stay longer and people are building relationships with people they wouldn't before. This is working. So is that a, a hard metric or number? No, but for me, that's, that's tangible proof that, and it wasn't just me, but it was the, the fact that this, organization from the top down and bottom up was was living this that to me that was great gratification and proof that the work was was working mm -hmm. and what, what are some like like you said earlier like there isn't this kind of obvious hard metric but what are some measurements like or I, maybe it's even like attempts you've had of like trying to measure if it's working or not and whether like why did those ones not work um curious on like past experiments that have that might have worked and might have failed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we, we have some of the standard, you know, engagement score stuff, which is interesting. But little things like um, absenteeism goes down, sick days go down, mm -hmm. productivity goes up. Um, you How know, do they fewer... measure productivity? Uh, I, I don't know. There are people who know far better than, than I do about measuring productivity. Um, uh, I was going to say something else. Sorry. Uh, that's fine. No, totally fine. Um, there are less HR complaints from people about their leaders, okay. right? Th there's one, um, you know, people rate their leaders higher, you know, their leaders actually lead, not just manage. Um, I'm trying to think what other stuff that we could do, but yeah, I mean, Productivity is is the quality of the work 
and the amount of time it takes, quality goes up and the amount of time goes down. Um, effectiveness and, 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 and efficiency. Um, but, but also, I mean, I, I think it's so interesting right now at, you know, we're recording this sort of in the thick of, of, of uh, the global pandemic with, with COVID and you see it, the, the organizations that are surviving, their first instinct isn't just to lay off and furlough. Their first instinct is to talk to their people and gain some ideas and get creative ways. And that this crisis is actually bringing them closer together than further apart, like a good family. So yeah, I mean, metrics and systems aren't, aren't my jam. I always look to, to others for that, but th those are a few that I hope, I hope help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's one of the things where for the system to continuously go, like there's got to be, I feel like there's got to be some kind of like positive feedback loop where it, like you said, brings other people t together and like it changes people from cynics to believers. And yeah, I'm curious, like what, what kind of feedback have you heard from organizations or leaders you've worked with where that you see that kind of flywheel taking effect and they go, yeah, like this has worked or this system has worked. Like what, they, what have they said? It's like the difference maker. And like what, what are some challenges conversely that they talk about? It's like, yeah, like I just can't seem to get over this hurdle. Yeah, I mean, you get the behavior you reward and you get behavior that you tolerate. And so mm -hmm. e there's two ways to shift the culture of an organization. One is revolution and the other is evolution. And revolution tends to be more sharp and violent. Evolution is takes a bit longer time, but it's, it's calmer, it's safer. Um, and evolution typically happens from the top down. Revolution happens from bottom or middle up. Um, and so, but both can work. So what I mean by this is if you're in an organization where you're not at the top and you feel like your leaders don't get it, you can still choose to lead this way. And you can still choose to be the leader that you wish you had for the people around you. And it'll either work wonders in the place that you're at or you'll still build trust and loyalty with the people around you and you can Jerry Maguire it and, and end up leaving and go to a different company and people will follow you or start, or start your own and people will follow you because that's trust. Um, you know, this stuff works at its best in an organization when it's embraced from, from the top down, but that's not the only way. Um, but it's that you have a leader who is, has, is staunch in their vision, um, who preaches their vision and then, helps ensure that the decisions being made, that the vision is being used as a filter, that the purpose and values are being used as a filter and that we stay clear with them. Um, I mean, this, this stuff I think is a lot more simple to understand than it is to practice. We just need to practice it at scale um, and get more and more people who, who believe in it. But I, again, I, I don't think, remember that people respond to the environments that they're in. So you don't need to convince everyone to be a believer of this stuff. If you're an environment in an environment in which um, you feel that your work has more value than the paycheck that you get, you feel like you're contributing to something bigger than yourself that matters, and you feel that the people around you make you better, that um, you don't have to be afraid of keeping your job or afraid that if you do something wrong, you'll be reprimanded. I mean, it's simple stuff. Um, it's, it's, again, when you feel 
the only way customers will love a company is in, is if the employees love it first. Mm-hmm. And so how do you get an employee to love a company? Well, you stand for something bigger than profit. You ensure that you live that from the inside out and you create bonds of trust and cooperation that just make things run better, faster, smarter. Mm-hmm. Buffett has a quote where he says, uh, you want to praise specifically and criticize generally. And then the idea of uh, praising Hmm. What what organization that you've uh, worked with comes to mind where they've actually done this turnaround effectively well, or whether it's a revolution or an evolution where they you know, actually consciously tried to make the changes happen, and now you're kind of seeing things take fruit, and it's actually working? Sure. I also think you can criticize uh, pretty specifically as well, and it can also be a service if you do so. I mean, just as a side note, there's an effective way of giving effective feedback, whether it's positive or constructive, it's called FBI, feeling behavior impact, right? I could just say, hey, Dan, great job. Like, well, what does that mean? Or I could actually tell you specifically, when you did this, it made me feel this way and the impact is. So I think you can both praise and criticize specifically. I, I'm i interested in, or in organizations that had it, lost it, and regained it. And there's a bunch of them. Um, Microsoft is is one of them under Gates, who's very infinite minded. And though he's introverted and a, and a dork, he's a, he's exceptionally infinite minded, and he puts um, he puts something bigger ahead of everything else. And he's done it with Microsoft. He's done it um, with the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation, and they lost it under Steve Ballmer, right? Ballmer, who previously was either the COO or CFO, and so many visionary CEOs will hand the company over to their left or right hand, who's typically a COO or CFO, but they're not typically visionary. And when you're the CEO, it's like, this is another diatribe, but we know what everyone does in the C-suite based on their title, CMO, CTO, CIO, COO. Like if you can't read a financial statement, you probably shouldn't be a CFO, but what the heck does a a CEO do? What does it mean to be an executive? So we believe that CEOs should be CVOs, chief vision officer, that it's their responsibility to point the company to the future and help everyone in the organization from C-suite down move closer toward it. Uh, And so, you know, when these CEOs pass the, you know, give the company to the successor, it's typically the COO or CFO because they know the business better than anyone else, but they're just may not have the capacity to be a visionary. And we need that. Um, Otherwise, it just becomes about the finite stuff. It just becomes about making widgets rather than advancing something bigger. And so I think Microsoft is is an interesting one now with Satya Nadell under the, you know, leading it. They're a lot more about empathy than they were ever before. Um, uh, When Sam Walton left and now, and there was a period of, of time under their leaders were, where Walmart uh, was hugely criticized from, from the public because it became very clear that they were about shareholder value first ahead of anything else. And they've shifted back and they've become a lot more focused on the end consumer um, rather than themselves. Uh, Lego is another interesting company where they had it, they lost it, and, and they've come back. Um, and now everything they, they do is really focused on their why, is really focused on... Um, I'm helping uh, people uh, use their imagination to create good. Could you expand uh, on the Lego story? Like, I'm not actually not familiar with the Lego one. Like, so Microsoft and Walmart, I think because I've been in the public markets, like you, we're also kind of very aware of like the business trend, right? Where Microsoft was a great company and then 
investors also all know like yeah during the Balmer era it's like nothing really happened and then Satya took over they've been full into cloud and so you, you're seeing the transference where you know as such maybe like made proper investments in people and you're seeing the business results of that but Lego is a private company and I'm not too familiar with how like their culture has evolved so I'd be curious to hear the story behind that yeah so Lego I, I don't know the the leaders at the helm but I just know that for many years they were number one in in toys and then all of a sudden other competitors came came along Mattel and others and took market share from them and and for a period of time they forgot what they stood for and became more about selling widgets rather than advancing something bigger and we've seen a recent resurgence from Lego where they've no longer defined themselves by what they do but define themselves by why they do it so um, Lego's why is is really to inspire and develop the 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 imagineers of, of of tomorrow to help people use their their minds and hands to create cool, awesome, useful stuff. And we've seen in recent years that Lego has hugely diversified what it is that they offer. So previously, they were only just a toy building block company. That's how they defined them them themselves in a period where they lost and were being attacked because they were number one. But now you look at what Lego does; they make movies. That are hilarious. They have apparel. They have um, uh, uh, restaurants and uh, and um, amusement parks. They do all these things that, looking from the outside in, you have no idea what their business is, right? They they make. Um, uh, I think they sold five hundred thousand pairs of underpants last year with Lego on them, right? Because Lego stands for um, building and imagining impossibilities. And so there was a period of time where other players attacked them and they, they reacted and then shifted to this is what we're about and let's find as many ways as possible to bring that to life. And are, is there like a specific kind of client that you've worked with that you can share um, their journey on or is that confidential? In terms of what? In terms of... Well, I guess like in terms of like if like you talked about how you go back to certain organizations and you see improvements and changes that are being made, like sometimes on like a quarterly basis. I'm curious if there's one that kind of you've worked with for a long period of time and you, you specifically see different kinds of changes that they've made and you're seeing improvements, um, whether it's on a business, get, business result or just seeing how like the people react and all that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um... One that I mentioned where I did that all hands talk and came back and, you know, yeah, years one. later, they, that, that was one. And and they just invested in their people and invested in their chain of leaders. Um, and they just knew that it was going to take time. Um, another one that comes to mind, they're a, they're a, 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 a small to mid-sized company. They're a home builder out of uh, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon states. Um, and they are big believers of, of the work. And they previously articulated a, a why statement, which um, was something around to, to generate wealth. And we pushed them on that because um, uh, wealth is, a, is an output, is a what. And it was a bit of a triggering term. And so they, they knew they maybe didn't articulate it as well as they could. And we helped them articulate it better. Um, and we encountered them as some of the most generous people and we'd help them uh, re-articulate their why is to give as you go so that we create thriving or enrich our, the, the communities around us. Um, and it's been amazing because some organizations, you'll help them 
articulate a why. And then they put on the website, they put it on the walls of, of the office, and then they just expect it to happen. Right. But this company, we helped them rearticulate their why, and they just kept working on it. And instead of plastering it to the walls, they made it so that everyone in the company could connect with it and feel it such that the time that they announced it two years later, we did one workshop, they kept working on it. And then we did an another workshop just to reaffirm to like check, is that really what it is with a whole new set of people from, from the company it was pretty cool. And they've begun to roll it out. And the response has been fantastic. Um, so, you know, I think there are some companies that use these concepts of purpose just as marketing fluff. And that's not what they are. Um, it really has to be lived. It has to be ingrained. Otherwise, it is just marketing fluff. Um, and, a, and a good test is when you have your own sort of commercial that you'd share to the outside world, any of your marketing materials, do your people look at it and go, uh-huh, are they inspired by it? Are they proud? Or do they just go, just, you know, corporate puffery? Right. You know? No, that's a good test, yeah. Do you, do you ever actually show it like at, at like a full workshop where you show the marketing material and see people's reactions? Uh, I, that's, that's something that we don't do unless, uh, they're, <laughs> they, they want us to, um, but yeah, I, I've done quite a bit of work with, the uh, San Francisco police department and one of their internal champions, a lot, the previous way they might even still be doing it, uh, that they've attracted, uh, young officers is by marketing the starting price or the, the starting salary. Uh, which is typically pretty high. Um, not a good way to start. Start with something that you believe, right? Um, so uh, no, we we typically don't do that unless uh, unless it's invited. Gotcha. Yeah. And as as we kind of get on, I think the final legs of this in, this uh, conversation, interview, chat, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm -hmm. You did. You, we we talked briefly about like some companies that you think have done an amazing job where they had it, they lost it and they have it again. But mm -hmm. if you had to kind of think about your uh, Mount Rushmore of like amazing organizations where they're, they just maybe like never lost sight of it. Like their leaders like never lost sight of it. And they're just doing such an exceptional job. Even now, what yeah. companies come to mind? One that comes to mind is Patagonia. I think they're Pat pretty, yeah, yeah. they're pretty awesome. With Yvonne Chouinard. What's that? Sorry. It's uh, Yvonne Chouinard, right? He's the yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I mean, it's, I'm I, I'm really interested in what are the companies that were were founded and now their founders gone. Like mm -hmm. the the lifespan of companies has been shorter. So another interesting one is Nintendo. I think they they're a, a Japanese company. I'm pretty sure they were founded as um, they made like playing card games, but they've totally flexed and they've brought on new new technology as they've gone they've been around for more than 100 years mm -hmm. right we just view them as a video game company but they're actually gaming right and they've actually moved with technology rather than resisted it i think another really interesting one is disney I mean, disney's been pretty pretty darn good they lost it a little bit under michael eisner um when he came in they are more about profit than about good wholesome family imagination and, and fun I mean, they had some Quentin Tarantino movies and stuff that like, well, that's not Disney. Um, but Disney's been pretty interesting. And what they've done with Disney Plus, I mean, they're, they're, they're very, they're very good. Disney um, is another one that we really look, look up to. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, all of what's what's I I'm most interested in what are the ones that have been able to do it for years and years on on end and flex with it, and mm -hmm. I think Nintendo's a pretty cool case study uh, of of one as well. Mm. No, awesome suggestions. Yeah, like I think in you know, there's always like the perspective of yeah, you learn more from failure than success, but I think there's also the reverse inverse of like. Well, you also want to study all these successes, so that kind of becomes the benchmark that you want to go up to. Sure. And yeah, I think those are really cool companies to definitely like look into for anyone that's interested. I'm definitely going to look further into uh, Nintendo Story. Like I've I knew about Patagonia, but Nintendo's a new one. I didn't really realize that they actually made trading cards and that they were actually that that old. So that's pretty cool. Um, but Stephen, thanks so much for uh, coming on this podcast interview and sharing your learnings, your wisdom, and everything you've experienced with myself and my audience. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I hope the conversation helps. No, yeah, definitely. And if they, if the listeners want to learn more about um, you and like, the, and like the Simon Sinek organization, where can they go? Where can they find like the virtual classes as well? Yeah. Uh, if you go to simonsinek.com, S-I-N-E-K.com. Um, and if you go to the shop page, we just launched all of our virtual classes. Uh, so yeah, you can learn more about us and Simon and the company and me there. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Bye.